Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Photographic Collective Podcast. You guys are sitting in today for part two of one of the most fascinating conversations uh, that I've had the opportunity to do on the other end of the mic from an absolute legend in this industry. If you haven't listened to part one with Jonas Peterson, go back to last week and make sure that you catch up on this. This is a cool unplugged, very candid conversation with one of the guys that has really shaped the way that the photographic industry sees storytelling, especially in this generation. So as we kick into part two, uh, join us in the middle of, uh, of this chat. And uh, you guys, I just can't wait to hear what you have to say about it when all of this is over. You know what I love, man, is um, I, don't, I don't even think you know this, but so we, we started shooting the same year. I uh, started shooting weddings the same year. I, I moved back from to Arkansas from New York and and kind of quit oh, yeah. the fashion thing and um, and started shooting weddings. But I was the photographer that you were talking about that was doing everything uh, ho- horrible. I mean, I, I I see my work from 2007 and it's like um, identity crisis every Saturday. Um, yeah, yeah. And and I think we all look at. I mean, that's a natural thing, right? We all look at our work and say like we were trying to solve who we were and what we were doing and. Um, and that's that's fine, but as we're as we're doing it, as we're trying to connect the dots while yeah. we're running full speed ahead. But what I what I think is fascinating though is is the the role that you've played in this industry for you know for yes for the young kind of the cool new hipster photographers with the cool hats and all of this stuff. But then the reality is like I've shared my entire career with you, mm-hmm. but we've we've kind of come uh, come together at such a radically different point in that career, right? Like it took me, um, it took me 13 years, 12 years really yeah. for anybody to even know my name, right? Before, before I won the awards and before I was speaking yeah. at the big platforms and teaching the workshops, I put in over a decade of, of trying to figure out who I was. And and it's again, it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here to kind of have a more candid conversation because it's, you, you know, you can Google like how to learn from Jonas Peterson and there's plenty yeah. of aspects to do that. But what I don't think people grasp is what's so powerful about you is this, this level of uh, self-awareness that, that got you there so much faster wasn't because you were more talented it was because you were more capable to, at least in my opinion, you were more capable to understand the value of what, what your talent was worth. I would say, let's be honest, I was older as well. <laughs> I, I, yeah, maybe. And I, hate, and I hate to say that, but I think that, um, and I don't think it's a prerequisite. I don't think anyone needs to be old to be successful, but I had those things, like I've gone through those things already. Like um, for me, people always say, like we have a mutual friend called Paul von Reacher, and I met Paul the first time in yeah 2010, I think I was maybe 29 even, um, where he was driving me around Orange County in a Hummer, um, and I'm like, who is this dude? Like, what what makes him tick or whatever? And then he showed me his work, and man, I love Paul. He's a really good friend of mine. But it was a it was just all over the place, and I was like, and it was more a matter of asking him, like, what are you? What's your, what's your idea here? What's, what's your, and he was just like, I'll slap all the filters on there. Like we're talking eight, ten filters on one image, and I was like, okay, well, well if we strip that back a bit or whatever. And um, but I think 
I had, what I was going to say is I had, so I started shooting in 2007, but I started photography in 1998. So I had a good almost 10 years of making all the mistakes with all the shitty Photoshop filters that we all do. Like, uh, I'm going to use cross-processing on every image or whatever. It's like, and I'm like, I'm so happy I didn't get into wedding photography at nine, in 1998 because my work, I've gone through the same process. Yep. Instead, I had a fairly good idea of how I wanted it to look. But also, I think that I had the benefit of, dude, I had 10 years in advertising where I looked at photography uh, every day and I worked with really talented photographers and directors every day. So for me, that kept me sort of, you know, everyone makes amateur mistakes and over edits or, you know, dodge and burn. So it looks like there's halos and everything. We all do that. And it's part, part of the process of learning. Um, and I had already done that. I think that's that was my help. I came in, I hit the ground running. And, and like you said, it took you 10 years to get there. For me, it happened overnight. It was like an overnight success. And people were like, even my wife at the time was like, what's happening? I was like, I don't know. People are... I've had like I had 175 inquiries in January one year alone. So it's like I could have shot five, six hundred weddings in a year if I had that much time. Um, but I, I I think that it came from a having a an idea of what I wanted to do and b doing something that no one else was doing at the time. It was those two things. Uh, and then over the years, I've become friends with people who have done exactly that. There's a guy in Australia who's a freak um, called Oli Sansom, for instance. And when Oli came onto the scene, Oli is I was like, amazing. What is Oli doing? Like everything looked, he was like the, the dark lord of everything was super dark and yep. Oli edits to death metal. And um, he's, he's a freak. Um, and, he, and he wouldn't book a wedding. He wouldn't book anything. Like a, his first year or whatever, I think he struggled with booking because his style was so different. Um, but I'll say that Oli is probably one of the biggest influences on the dark, the moody mm -hmm. um, imagery that you see today out there. And people don't even know who he is. It's like, oh, you don't know who Oli stands on it. Well, he's the reason so many people shooting, maybe not the reason, but like people I think who... He he has affected the Kitcheners. He's affected the Pharaohs. He's affected. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that entire, that entire genre. But I would say to be honest though, Jonas, whether you know this or not, I, I love the way you put it on your website where you say you're, you're neither light and airy, nor are you dark and moody or just present. Right. But I will say yep. like my earliest, some of my earliest exposure to, um, to images that are, you know, like technically under, um, yep. was you. What was images like like the the picture of the couple walking through the sun rays in the in the in the forest, right? Um, yeah. or the couple in the castle with the the light coming through the windows and me realizing like the power, the context in that image is the light. Yeah, and, and that image isn't even sharp that we're talking about no, the last it's, one. It's it's significantly it's yeah. out. It's completely out. But it's one of the most powerful wedding photos I've I, seriously, one of the most powerful wedding photos I've ever seen. I agree. And I think that what I learned very quickly is that I used to be, um, I used to be a perfectionist when it comes to the reason I didn't get into photography to begin with when I was in advertising was that I didn't feel like my photography was polished enough. 
And then to just do a very quick short story, I was home and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I was there with my son, Noah, and he was two at the time. And he was running around me in circles as two-year-olds do. And I just picked up my Canon 5D and I started just following him around. And he was just laughing his ass off because I was chasing him with the camera. And everything is, you know, shot indoors in a dark house at a 15th of a second. And I shot maybe 80 images. And then I did what you did. I pulled them all into Lightroom or whatever I did. And I just slapped on one thing, one mm -hmm. preset. And we're talking about blocked shadows, blown highlights, blurry, everything, motion blur. Compositions are all over the shop. And then I put a song over that. And then I watched it together with him. And I started crying. Like I was just crying my eyes out. And that's actually what happened was that I looked at that and go, this is what I'm good at. Yeah. I am good at evoking emotion. I'm good at telling a story. And it doesn't have to be technically perfect. It, does not, it doesn't even matter if it's technically perfect. And then some of my favorite photographers, um, Anton Corbin, for instance, who's a Dutch portrait photographer, he always shoots at a 15th of a second. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, we were shooting digital and stuff. And I think that people are so afraid of imperfection. And digital has created a sense that everything needs to be sharp or whatever. Uh, but almost all of the photography you've seen has been shot on really bad cameras and film mm -hmm. on a 15th of a second. And not a thousand of a second or eight thousandths of a second in broad daylight. So when I posted those images, like we're talking about that, image that's shot in a church ruin in Sweden, people, there's so many people coming out and it's like, it's not even sharp. And I was like, it doesn't matter. You feel, it makes you feel something. And they were like, yeah, but it's not sharp. That's not what we do. And like, it's what I do, you know? And, and a technically perfect image, and I've shot plenty of technically perfect images, but those tend to not be the images that I connect with. So for me, for instance, I shoot personal, my personal work is all shot with really banged up shitty film cameras. I shoot Polaroids, for instance, uh, peel apart Polaroids, because I find that digital is just too clean and it's just too good. Um, and then I bring out those cameras and it's a shit show. It's just like, oh, you peel off half the image. And But I'll tell you that those are my favorite images, way more than any of the digital imagery I've created. Um, and it's just something about imperfection that resonates with me and I guess my story. And I think that the people who try and put on a facade of being perfect aren't my couples because um, you're not perfect. And if you try and pretend you are, then I know you're wrong. Then I know you're lying. I know you're going through stuff. And if you're going to pretend that you're perfect in front of me as a photographer, I won't be able to capture you for who you are. Um, so for me, I was like, I need to, post more imperfect stuff. I need to show more imperfect things. I need to show people that I'm not perfect. Uh, and the more imperfect I can show people I am, maybe it will inspire someone to realize that I don't have to be perfect. And I hope, if, if honestly, if people hear nothing else from this podcast, I, I really hope it's that. Because I think there's so much value in being able to say... Um, being able to say that like if you show up, if you humanize yourself in your own images, then then what you become to people 
isn't uh, you're not a camera operator, right? Like you're not you're not somebody that's just holding this computer that documents their day. You're you're the soul behind that camera, and and that's the importance of it. And there's this uh, there's a, a photographer. Um, I think he's from the Ukraine. He may be from Russia, and I'm going to find it. I'm going to send it over to you. Um, yeah, he's yeah. a guy that I've followed, and I just can't think of his name offhand. But he's a guy that I've followed on Instagram for years and years and years. But he, um, he he's he's similar in the sense that everything is at like a fifteenth of a second, right? And you know what? What changed for me? I ended up meeting, and I spoke at a big conference last year where I spoke about this. But I ended up meeting with a neurologist, and I just sat and I was like, "Okay, talk to me about the way the brain absorbs uh, sight." And he was explaining to me, he was like, man, thousandths of a second. I mean, like 10,000th of a second from the time period that your eye sees something to the point that time that you have a hormonal reaction to what you just saw. And so I asked him this question. I said, so if you can make the eye struggle to find a focus point, can you delay that? And he was like, absolutely, 100%, absolutely. He's like, that's why when your eyes are dilated, when you leave, you know, you, you feel dizzy, you feel kind of all over the place, right? And, and, uh, and so I said, well, so theoretically, if an image is just a little bit out of focus, aren't you more likely to have a, an emotional reaction to that image because you're struggling to find the focus point? And, and he looked right at me, straight on at me, and he said, absolutely. I'm like, okay, I, I may never shoot sharply. Yeah, and I'll tell you one thing. I have this from advertising, uh, and I learned a, a long time ago, when it comes to telling stories, the biggest mistake you can make is tell the whole story. Uh, and what I mean by that is you don't want to close the loop. You don't want to tell them the whole story. You want the people to figure out the last bit themselves. And if, you, if people do that, then you've activated them in their... Um, they're participating in the story um, rather than being fed the story. And as soon as they close the loop themselves, you have a much more engaged viewer than um, if you close the entire loop. Uh, and in advertising, we have this thing that, like as, as a writer, if you have a, an image of someone uh, angling or fishing from a boat, you don't want to say, oh, Liz, fishing from a boat. Well, I can see that. You don't have to tell me that. I'm not stupid. Um, instead, people look at the image and, and what's going on here, and then they close the loop themselves. And I think the same thing goes with any story you're telling. If you can make them close the loop, um, figure things out uh, in what you're telling, they feel smart. And if they feel smart, they feel good about themselves. And if they feel good about themselves, they're releasing drugs in their brain. And if they do that, they feel something for what you've just shown them. If they feel something for what you've shown them, what will they do? They will book you for their next wedding or whatever. I mean, it's cynical in a sense, but it isn't really. But that's how the brain works. Yeah, I think I think it it can be cynical if your motives aren't aren't pretty straight. But as long as your motivation is to then serve and take care of these people, then yeah, for me, it's like know. if I can tell personal stories and connect with people, and that gives me business, and I'm like, I'm all for that. You know. Yeah, um, I'm kidding. All right, so so do me a favor, Jonas. Uh, what, what is I, I know you're you're kind of like figuring out right now what comes next for you in your career and and where you're headed and and yep. uh, and dude, I, I'll be honest, like I'm I'm probably as eager as you are to see what what comes next. Um, just because you know I I don't know I, I love to stay close, but um, 
what's the what's the number one way that people that are listening to this podcast like what's way, ways that we can support you like what's something that we can do to kind of pour back in and and either learn from or i don't know engage with you um well the the answer that comes to mind is my workshop that i put together on storytelling um and i say that because i spent i started working on it in 2010 and I've taught the workshop in a hundred iterations around the world. Um, and then in 2020, I was like, I was like, oh, if you're true to what you're saying, you should make this stuff accessible to people. Um, and I've sold that workshop for, and I'm not, when I started out, it was $2,000. The workshop was two grand, it was two days. Um, it had a bunch of other stuff in it, everything from editing to, you know, how you put a slideshow together. And, and then over the years, I've just, funneled it in and then in 2020 i decided let's put this together um and offer it online so instead of offering it for two thousand dollars i started selling it for 59 dollars and now it's 79 dollars and, and i think that for me i did it because I, I i talked to so many people i have a patreon group as well and i talked to so many people who are struggling with feeling inadequate struggling with feeling i'm never going to be as good as I'm never, never going to sell as many presets as, uh, you know, um, India Earl, or um, I'm never going to shoot Nick Jonas's wedding like Jose Villa, or they attend these conferences, the summit or whatever. And I, I would guarantee, because I've been to all these, I've spoken at all of them. And what I do is I sit in the corner and I observe how people change and how they behave throughout the course of the conference. And I, I've always, almost always, I'm the closing speaker. The reason I started talking about these, the softer things, like you are enough, like there's nothing that you're doing that's not good enough. It's because there's so many good speakers at these conferences. And the last one was the summit that I spoke at. And there's two days of people who have their shit together. And there's, you know, Dawn and India and a bunch of people sharing their client guides or here's how I prompt people like you talked before mm -hmm. and they all feel like, Oh man, I, I, so many things I have to do if I want to be a good enough photographer. So I just came in and went, you got this, you know, you, you don't have to put together uh, this guide or you don't have to worry about just go in and be you. The rest is sort of like if you become the next fair juristy or Jonas Peterson or miles, whatever, that's out of your control. All you're in control of is doing as well as you can. And the better you treat people, the better you're going to feel about yourself. And, and if that leads to success, fine. If it doesn't, at least you can say, I did my best, you know? But a lot of people are so discouraged by the industry and feel like they're in these groups and everyone edits with the same stuff and everyone's an adventure elopement photographer who have never shot an elopement or an adventure in their life. And I was like, why, what is it that you think you want to be? Um, and when I, for a long time, I was probably the, one of the higher paid destination photographers in the world. And I was just milking that and charging a lot of money. And, and then a lot of people wanted to be like me. And I'm like, dude, you made $700,000, $800,000. I was like, yeah, I did that. And how can I do that? And I, my answer would always be, you don't want to. Um, if you think that the life that I've had 
it's glamorous, um, you're wrong. Um, yep. What it is is spending 200, 300 days out of the year on planes and in hotel rooms away from the people you love. Um, and then you may get lucky and connect with people on a Saturday and then you fly home again. That is destination wedding photography. It is draining. It is not going to pay you as much as local wedding photography. Um, and you're going to be lonely. And uh, like, and I showed an example of me, my friend Sam Blake, Dan O'Day. We all have the same experience. It's, it's not the glamorous life that you think it is. Like, uh, it is, and I've flown everywhere and I've shot everywhere. And it's fantastic to have seen the world. And I wouldn't want, if I could do it over again, I would do it over again. But um, it's not that glamorous. It's like a, if you think it's glamorous, then you're looking at it the wrong way. It's literally paying not as much, and you're you're giving out five, six, seven days of your life for for what? For spending time with the people you actually care about. Um, were you? I think you were in the. I just remember. I, th- I think I remember you being a part of this conversation. Um, over in Clubhouse, I had a I had a chat with uh, with Ben Chaish one day. We were, and when he was talking, I, I kind of asked him. I was like, you know, talk talk like talk through some of the the harder parts of this lifestyle, right? Like expose people to this. And he said, um, I'll never forget this. But he said some of the lowest parts, the some of the lowest points in his life, were sitting alone at a uh, you know um, at a train stop in Italy. And and realizing that he was living the dream that he had wanted, but he yep. didn't have anybody to share it with, you know. So like his yep. his family, his kids, everybody was at home making their own memories, and and he wasn't there to be a part of it. I've eaten at the five top restaurants in the world mm-hmm. uh, alone. Mm-hmm. Um, fun, yeah. fun times. Yeah, that's hard. I was hired to Gordon Ramsay uh, at his restaurant in LA. He came up to me at the table and was like, "You enjoying it?" I was like, "I am." You're eating alone? I am. And then you realize that that's, that's, that was my life for a very long time. Um, mm. And then when I met my wife, Sarah, um, I, I had decided already, this is not what I want to do. And I, I want to be present uh, in my life. Um, and then the shift from shooting that much, traveling that much became really easy because I am not interested in pursuing the hustle anymore like there are other people who are hungrier than i am uh, and that's a natural progression it's like there are younger people who have time to spend 300 days traveling a year uh, let them do that uh, you know um but if you have a three-year-old or whatever and a wife who misses you then it, it is not a lifestyle i recommend to anyone um mm-hmm. shoot local and take more uh, vacations instead. That's what I would recommend. There you go. But having said that, I always say to people, like when I taught my workshop, I would tell people, I shot 65 weddings in 24 countries in 2010. And, um, and I'm like I said, I made $775,000. And I said, if you ever get a chance to do that, don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to hate it. And I know when I say that to people that, if you get the chance to do that, is there a chance that you won't do it? No way. Anyone would do it. Shoot 65 weddings in 24 countries and made $775,000. Anyone who's not stupid would just go, I'm going all in. Mm-hmm. You know? But I can tell you afterwards that you're going to go, 
that wasn't all that. And that sucked pretty badly. But you're going to have to make that mistake yourself. No one can make those mistakes for you. I'm only here to tell you that you're going to hate your life. <laughs> and, um, and that, but everyone has to make that mistake themselves. They have to walk the walk and they have to realize this is not for me. Or if it is, then all the power to you. Maybe you can bring your partner with you to everything you shoot. But you have to be honest about why are you... Like for me, for instance, I sat down after reading that book and were like, why are you away from home so much? And I was like, uh, it became very obvious very quickly what the reason for that was. And it's like, um, and for me, it's like, look at what you're doing. And if you're, I invest myself in my couple so much. Yeah. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's both good creatively, but are you doing it because you're substituting something else in your life or, um, you know, I have an addictive personality, and uh, I've. <laughs> so for me, I realize I'm. I do those things because I, I. I am. I go all in in whatever I do, <laughs> whether it's drinking or shooting weddings or traveling or living life to the max, or whatever. And then, um, so that's just my personality. But it's it's realizing maybe it's not great at all times to have that trait it's good for success but not good for being a living a full wholesome life i think um man i think that probably sums it up like so well i mean you guys that are that are still listening an hour and a half into this and we just i jonas is such a wealth but um you guys if you've made it this far i i want you to i want you to slow down and actually consider like head over and check out that workshop that he mentioned um, it's actually a part of it. I haven't even talked to you about this, Jonas, but a part of the curriculum that we're building that I'm building for these group training protocols for the photographic yeah. collective. Um, a big part of that is me referencing throughout these curriculums, other trainings and other courses that I've taken that have heavily yeah. influenced the education. I think that's something that's missing in, in the industry is everybody has their own course, but nobody talks about where they absorb this stuff from. Yeah. Exactly. It's very true. I'll say one thing that I, you brought it up before. You talked about sort of just being, treating people with care or whatever. Like uh, showing up for people is a thing that I think is super important. And I've not always been good at it. I haven't even showed up for my own family and all that. But I will say that I was the WPPI my first time in 2009. And uh, I went to a party for... Richard's photo lab, which is this big lab in LA. Um, I didn't know anyone. I was new in the industry. I don't know why on earth I'd flown to Vegas, but uh, you know, you do things because you're silly. Um, and I was just shoved my face with an arancini ball standing in a corner, hoping no one would see me. And then someone taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around with a full mouth of arancini ball. And it's the guy standing there saying, I'm such a big fan of your work. Like I, you, you don't even know how much I love your work. And I'm like, but you're Jose Villa. That's, I mean, yeah. like, I am. And I said, I just want to let you know that I love your work and what you're doing in the industry is just much needed. And then he left. <laughs> and then it turns out that Jose was the one who nominated me for the best wedding photographer in the world for this American photo magazine. And I probably wouldn't have had the career I did if it wasn't for him being the nicest fucking person. I've Like every time you meet Jose, he'll give you his time. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it's not easy to do. But if you if you're gonna walk the walk and be an inspiration to people, you better fucking sorry for swearing in so much, but take the time to care for people. And um, and a lot of people who don't know me will assume that I am more of an asshole than I am because there's like if you're someone who talks a lot, speaks a lot, is vocal about things, people assume that you're a dickhead. It's just the way it is. And but then all you can do is show up for people when you actually meet them and and let people share their stories, listen. And I think that's the thing that I've also learned that and I talk about it in the workshop as well, like being as listening to someone's story is more important than telling the story. Because if you haven't done the listening part, you can't tell their stories. Like you have to realize what the subtleties and what they just told you before you can piece that story together and put it back together into some sort of whole. And I think that learning that, and if I want to influence people, I need to show up for them. Um, And this thing you're doing with the collective and all that, it's just like, whatever your ulterior motive is, that is important to remember that I need to show up for people. And um, if you do that, the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. It's amazing how just being, I would say that's at this point, that that is the difference. It's It's been an interesting ride for me, Jonas, uh, over the last year has, has been me yeah. fighting this and fighting it and basically saying like, I've got, I've got a career, I've got employees, I have a wife, I have kids. I have clients and for for a decade now really but but really for 4 or 5 years I've fought this this feeling of like you know what this industry has taken such good care of me yeah. but there's a huge hole there's a massive gap in it in in the sense of people that are willing to just show up for each other and just say like hey here's here's absolutely free training here's free advice here's like here's a way that we can that we can solve the simple problems and you know what if you want to dig in deeper then sure there's mentor programs and there's opportunities yeah. to learn and there's stuff, but like just the simple things like you're, you're battling through insecurity. Well, here's, let's just jump on a call and fix it. People are lost and mm-hmm. for a good reason. And I think that if you can help people get unstuck or help them realize that their story is important enough and interesting enough, um, then that's it. And then you just take a step to the side and let them shine, basically. Um, and, and that's something that gives me incredible joy when you see the people who've attended my workshops or, and then they contact me and said, you changed my life. And I was like, oh, that's, that's big words. But man, it's like if, if I've managed to do that, then I've managed to do what I set out to do. Um, because I left advertising wanting to make a difference in people's lives. Um, and then I spent five years indulging in my own career building, wasn't changing anyone's lives. And then I realized that to be able to change someone else's life, I need to change mine. To be able to, um, to make a difference in the world, I have to make a difference in someone else's world. Um, so start small, like... I can change your life if I make an effort. And by doing that, it's like the whole thing, you know, uh, I think it was uh, John Lennon who said, uh, is it think global, act local? I think something like that. And I think, or the other way around, maybe even. But I think just, you can change people's lives, but you don't 
think about changing the world. You think about changing people's lives one person at a time by being a support to them. Um, and if you can do that, then you made a difference. Um, and then um, that's the legacy I want. Not so much you showed a kick-ass image on Pfeiffer Beach at 7 a.m. in the morning. That looks amazing. And it does. But that's not what I want to sort of, when I quit, I don't want people to say, oh, you took those five images. So, like, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't care about that. Yeah. Um, but ironically, that's the stuff that people still book me for. It's like, I saw your wedding in Africa. I was like, oh, great. That's, that's when I started changing what I do. But, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I'm not stupid. I, I've been in marketing. <laughs> like, it's important to have those bangers as well. Like, you yeah. have those to pull people in. And once you pull them in, you have to make them realize that's not what I do. You know, um, I, I will say that nothing has hurt my career more than that wedding in Africa, for instance. Uh, because once I shot that, normal people stopped contacting me because all of a sudden I was just shooting weddings on the savannah in Africa. And people are like, it's never going to want to shoot my wedding in backyard New Jersey. Um, so, which was a problem for me. So for years, people wouldn't book me because they thought I was just the biggest rock star in the world. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, that's not going to work for me. It's not going to work for <laughs> at all. And it didn't. Like uh, my booking rate went down because, um, and that's something I talk about as well. And you know as well, like you show what you sell. Being shot on the Savannah in Africa, that's what I'll be booking next. Mm -hmm. If you show a lot of emotional backstory weddings, backyard weddings with people who give a crap, then you'll book more weddings like that. So, be very careful what you put on your website because that's what you'll be booking uh, when it comes to the style of bride, style of couple, style of location, style of everything. Like I know for five years I shot the same guest book because someone saw the first wedding I shot and then everyone of my clients copied the same stupid guest book for five years. Yeah. And then I realized, man, it's like what I shoot is what I'll be shooting next year. Um so I'm not cynical about what I shoot, but I'm very aware that if I post a wedding in a castle in Ireland where there's a designer dress, then that's the people who are going to be contacting me next. Um, so you have to be aware of, if you want to get out of a rut of where you are, or if you want to do something differently, then you have to start doing that different thing straight away. Um, because... I want to shoot uh, destination weddings. Yeah, where are you based? I'm like, I'm in Iowa. Okay, yeah, that, there's nothing wrong with that. Have you shot in destination weddings? No. Well, then that's your first goal. You need to get a wedding under your belt. Well, how do I do that? Anyway, whatever it takes. Do it for yeah. free. And people were like, whatever, I shouldn't shoot for free. I'm like, that's right. You shouldn't shoot for free. But if it's going to give you business, then you didn't shoot for free. Yeah. Like I shot my first destination wedding for free or for flights hotel room in Bali 2009 and then the next year after that I booked 12 Bali weddings at full price so is that shooting for free or is it investing in uh, next year depends on what you're after but I, I can be super frustrated when I'm in these groups on Facebook or whatever and someone posts saying I am um, I'm eloping in Venice next year uh, we have no money. Who wants to shoot it? And then there's a hundred people saying they want to shoot it. Mm -hmm. We happen to be, no, we, you don't happen to be in Venice at that time. But I get it. It's like, I've told people, whatever it takes to shoot your first destination, just do it, man. 
Um, so there's no point in me being frustrated, but it means I will be losing business because I started three times more than they do or whatever. But at the same time, it's what I preach. And I think that investing in, if you're not shooting the way you want to be shooting today, then you can change that. Like I looked at my stuff and I looked at it and I was like, I don't think my portraiture is um, intimate enough, emotional enough. And then I looked at people like Gabe and Fair and I was like, man, like, what are they doing differently that I'm not? And then I just broke down what I was doing. I looked at what they were doing. I looked at what other people were doing. And then I built it back together. And then I went out and did a, a prompted portrait shoot, actually, one of those where I prompt people and tell people what to do. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be a super emotional portrait shoot because I went in with the intention of changing how I shoot. So it's like, I don't like how I shoot portraits. Well, change it. You're the only one in control of that. Like you have all the keys to the castle. It's just about using them. Um, I want to shoot destination weddings. What are you doing about it? Oh, nothing. Well, that's why you're not shooting destination weddings. I, I'm not cynical about it, but it's you have the answer to your question. I want to shoot gay weddings. Have you shot any? No. Have you made an effort to shoot any? No. Well, that's your answer. Like, uh, I want to shoot more weddings at this venue. Have you talked to the venue? Have you sent them your work? Have you? Is it, is, the answer to the question is almost always, I have none do, done nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, it, it takes an insane amount of hustle to be good at this. And I, I'm not sure if I have it in me anymore, but I think that I have had the hustle in me for many years. And I think that the people who hustle their asses off and constantly look at what they're doing and analyzing themselves more than the industry and looking at sort of like, what can I do to contribute here? Um, And I started looking at people are discouraged, people are lost, people are feeling that they're not good enough in this industry because they're so saturated. That's what I want to tell people. That's what I want to teach people that, dude, I'm an amateur photographer who just shot a wedding randomly and now I'm doing what I do. It's like there's no being better at shooting photos. That's not what I do. I decided that I want to tell emotional stories and then I've tried to fine tune that for 15 years. You know? Yeah. And I think that wherever you are in your career, whether you're on day one or year 15, you can still make changes at all times. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, um, when people book me for this. And like, you'd be surprised. Like, they, they don't book you for that. And, and if they do, you can always shoot two weddings at the same time. You can shoot the wedding you were hired to shoot. And then maybe you want to experiment shooting like Ollie Sanderson for a whole day. That's okay. You can do that too. And then all you need to show on your social media channels or whatever is what you shot for you. Mm-hmm. And there's another thing I learned from Jose Villa, actually, from listening to him. We talked about education before. I listened to him talk at WPPI, and he does this thing called One for Me, One for Thee. Um, so if he shoots with a couple and they want to shoot, can we do this photo where we're running through a field holding hands? And he goes, yep, yeah, shoot one for me and one for you. And then he shoots that photo for them. And then he does the, bit, the, the more risky stuff that he wants to do. He's like... Yeah. You mind taking your clothes off, you know, just nude portraits and stuff. And as long as you shoot what you've been hired to shoot and you cover your bases and then you can go out and uh, experiment, you don't have to show anything but the experiment if you don't want to, you know, it's up to you what you show. Um, 
but don't say my clients don't book me for this kind of work. Like you can still shoot it. You can still um, do it on the day. You just have to be a bit more split vision and shoot sort of, this is what I want to shoot. This is what I've been hired to shoot. And if you can do that, you can shift your focus. You can shift your career. You can shift your style. You can do whatever. Um, but another thing, I think we talked about it before, that I found was key was that I was starting to shoot less personal work. Um, and personal work is highly influential for me. Um, so that's when I started shooting Super 8 because I, I was realizing I was shooting less and less personal work, even of my family and people around me. If I'm not even shooting my, the people around me in their intimate moments, why am I... How am I going to be good at it when it's live? So for me, I started shooting film um, and video, Super 8, of my family. And then that translated into actually doing it for couples in the end. So now I'm shooting Super 8 films for couples. Um, and I charge $6,000 a pop for that. You know, It's not like I'm going to give it away for 400 bucks because I think it's a fun thing to do. It's like I've always felt it's important to make money and provide for my family. I'm not going to apologize for that. Yeah, that's... Dude, I don't even know if there's a, a way to wrap this up better than everything that you just... I really <laughs> never don't. Is. You'll learn that when you talk to me. That's uh, just... You can keep going for hours, but uh, that's that's just... Uh, um, I do talk a lot, and I think that um, there's no fast answers to anything, but I think that there is no fast answers to anything like in this industry. Like there's, If you think there's a a way to cut to where you want to be by cutting corners or treating people badly, then you're going to have a rude wake-up call. There is no cutting corners. It's like, start now, treat people well, success will come. Yeah, rinse and repeat. Uh, man, okay. Jonas, dude, my uh, my mind is absolutely blown. I was I was expecting big things, but this has been uh, this has been really cool. I, I First things first, man, I just, I'm really grateful for your time. I mean, um, you know, Two hours of of uh, candid conversation with you is uh, that's really valuable. That's that's worth a lot, and so it means a lot for for me to be able to have had that personally, let alone share it with everybody. Um, so guys, if if you've if you've stuck this thing out, um, y'all check down check down in the show notes. There's going to be a a link um, to uh, the workshop that Jonas has talked about several times, as well as more information on his work and. Um, and how to get a hold of him. Jonas, I, I'll say this as bold and blunt as I possibly can. I would give absolutely anything. How many times have you heard this? I would give anything to go back and have had you shoot my wedding. Uh, man, just to just to have those moments. And so at some point, I, I think I may need to convince my wife. We need to get... You're in Austin, right? I am, yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, let's d- dump out and let's go to Austin. Hang out, man. Because I, I, there's... Yeah. Dude... There's just so much depth and so much value in what you do. And I'm just so grateful for the influence that you've had in my work and in my career, um, as well as, you know, in, in my industry, which is something that I, you know, I'm really pouring into these days. And I just am grateful for that. So thanks so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Um, all right, guys. Uh, we, <laughs> wow. Uh, listen to this one 10 times. Um, I'm killing the recording, but y'all start over. Just clear your day and start listening to it again. <laughs>